0: and uh, realize that in this life we could never even scratch the surface of um, understanding that. Yet you love us and you've sent your Son and you've called us to your side, not only to sonship but to service, and we thank you for that. Father, we pray this morning also for uh, Bill Belanger, who is preaching his first message uh, at the church that he's attending, we just pray that you would bless him and uh, free up his heart and allow your spirit to speak through him too speak to us also we pray in Jesus name amen well, I am going to begin my message with the rabbit trail I figured may as well get that out of the way right away George Mueller I read something uh, that he had said maybe it was a couple years ago and i can't even remember but He said that he stopped praying as the first thing that he did in his quiet time. When he woke up in the morning, what he would do is he would spend time in the Word. And he expressed it in a funny kind of way. He said, I read until I'm happy in Jesus. Well, I mean, for George Mueller to say happy in Jesus, that just sounds completely out of place. But, you know, trying to understand what he was saying there, I I tried to do some of that, whatever that meant. But what really helped me this year was kind of a journey I've been on with regard to reading about D.L. Moody. That has been something very, very unexpected. And I think I know what he meant. Because, I mean, obviously, Moody was really a fan of George Mueller. In fact, he had written, he had read uh, A.T. Pearson's uh, biography of. Uh, George Mueller before he ever went over to Europe into England, and so he was one of those people that Moody really wanted to see. And the other was Spurgeon because Spurgeon, like Moody, was a kind of like a self-educated man, and and sort of in that way had Moody's heart. But the thing about Mueller and the thing about Moody was their focus on God's love. And so, if you can imagine this, you know. How are we supposed to face every day? And really, it isn't just facing every day, it's facing this life, regardless of what is in our lives. And you know, when it's 82 and sunny outside, you can always feel happy in the Lord. You feel happy in anything. But when you really have weight on you, different things are uh, not the way you would like them in your life. Whatever the case may be, how do you kind of come to that place where you actually, through reading the Word, become happy in Jesus? And one of the things the Lord showed me was just sort of a repetition of verses. Now, if you, just for this next year, did nothing more than memorize or just read through every day the first three chapters of Ephesians, that would kind of get you there. Because those chapters start out just talking about God's glory and talking about our position. It's sort of our identity. It's our identity every day. The part that I like is really at the end of those three chapters when Paul gives a kind of benediction. He says, "...for this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with might through his Spirit." In the inner man. So one of the things that I've done is when I, when I go out and I pray after reading in the morning, whatever, is I notice that when I'm, I'm like burdened, I look down. I'm just looking down for whatever reason. And I thought to myself, well, if it really says the riches of his glory, I mean, where can I see that? One place I can see it is up. Uh, so when I pray, I make a habit of looking up. And, of course, that's sort of overwhelming, you know. I mean, especially the clouds this week have been amazing. And you realize that it isn't just God, what he's performing there. It's all of what we don't know. The richness, the depth of the universe. The guy, Elvin, who uh, came in here last week, he and I were talking this week, and he's just asking a question, why did God make anything outside of the earth? I mean, you know, one layer of stars would have been enough. One layer of planets would have been okay. But it's just goes on. So what Paul is saying there is, according to the riches of his glory, we, having some sense of that, the Spirit builds strength into our heart so that, in order that, Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. Abiding in Christ... So that, by virtue of that, we become rooted and grounded in love. Whose love? Jesus' love. So that, along with all the other saints, we can understand, or we can at least scope out, the length and breadth and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses all knowledge. And that's the point. The love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge. Jesus is for us, that person. And our strength is in him, our joy is in him. And it really needs to be, at least for me, I mean, you, maybe maybe you're, maybe you're going to get together and say, boy, I, you know, I thought Dan got out of kindergarten a long time ago. But whatever that means for me, it means that when I really center myself in that, that's a good place to start the day. And you know and it 's not automatic it 's actually having to go to the word it 's actually having to learn those verses it 's actually needing to soak that in. But I think that is what made George Mueller happy, because you can pretty much take on anything after that. So I thought I would mention that because the thing is we 're going to be talking in this message about some hard things, but life is full of hard things. The, at the end of the day, it's the love of Christ that overwhelms us. It's the love of Christ that defines us. And at the end of the day, we'll be standing before a Savior who will not chastigate us. At the end of the day, he will welcome us, and it will be Glorious. So that's something to remember. We do, uh, the best we can do is the best we can do here. Now Timothy's situation is sort of hot, sweaty, and under stress. You know, one of the best things that I ever did in studying Timothy was just to read it out loud. Because if you read it out loud enough, you, you kind of start picking up a certain cadence, and you realize by the end of the letter, if you read it like that, you're almost out of breath. Because Paul is issuing commands to Timothy, and there's tension almost in every place. And so, chapter 5 for Timothy could not have been, I mean, you know, I I can imagine if this was in different pages. He turns the page over to chapter 5, and he sees this about, okay, don't, you know, don't don't, uh, speak harshly to the older men. And then he gets into this place about widows, and it's like, oh, just like, Paul, this is just what I needed. Tell the younger women they ought to go out and have children. We're not going to support them financially. I mean, do I hear lawsuit out there anywhere? You know, this is is Paul, though, helping Timothy to put this church back together because the fires of Nero are out there. You know, you, you kind of wonder, what happened to the leaders here? Uh, why is Paul giving Timothy apostolic authority to set leaders in place and set elders in place and to go through this list and everything? You know, even in our world today, if somebody comes in and they want to um, dominate, uh, the first thing they look for are the leaders. Who are your leaders? Who's in charge of this, this organization here? Well, it's him and him and him and him. Oh, yeah, guys, come on out to the truck. We're going to go take you somewhere. And that happens. And now, so what happens when you have a leadership vacuum and you're also under pressure? And that's where Timothy is right now. And so Paul comes into this interesting conversation in chapter 5. And one of the reasons it makes it interesting is because when you look at the whole thing, and what Paul's saying here, what's he really saying in chapter 5? Well, the part about elders I understand. What about the part about widows? Now, the interesting thing is that 1 Timothy and Titus are very parallel. So sometimes, if you don't understand something in 1 Timothy, what you do is you page over to Titus and you see what he says there. And if you don't understand something in Titus, you go back to 1 Timothy and you find a much, sometimes more detailed expression of what Paul is expressing to Titus. So these books are very complementary. One thing you have in Titus that you do not have here is the ministry of women to women. Titus 2, 3 through 5. This is not something that casually takes place over coffee. In fact, in Dallas, for many years, there was a thing called Titus 2, 4 Ministries run by a woman named Victoria Craft. And at our church, what was that? Faith Bible Church many years ago. On a Wednesday afternoon... Uh, or morning, she would gather three to five hundred women and teach. And it was a big ministry. You don't exactly have that in Timothy, but here's the question that some people ask about what Timothy says about widows. It seems they had a job. They weren't just being paid. Uh, When you read what it says about the younger women, Paul seems to be saying they get off track quickly. You want You want proven women. And the thing that's so interesting about that is that what Paul says about the older widows almost looks like the description of a deacon. And so some people have kind of formulated what Paul is telling Timothy to do here is, okay, you have deacons, uh, women, put them to work. Get them out there and help them start strengthening the women and make sure they're going to do a good job at it. And then he comes over to elders. That could be. Nobody exactly knows. But the thing is, obviously, Paul is still talking about trying to get this church back on track. So when he comes to this discussion, this is kind of interesting, because what Paul says here, in verse 17, is let elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the Scripture says you shall not muzzle an ox when it's treading out the grain, and that the laborer deserves his wages. So, why is Paul interjecting this here? There's a second group here that would be receiving money from the church. Employed by the church, so to speak. So, reading biblical eldership. One of the things that Alex Strzok does when he gets to this verse is he really underscores the idea of leader. Now, your Bible may say rules well, but the word there can be interpreted, it is leader. He rules well. You don't want anybody ruling in the church. I don't want anybody ruling in the church. It's the idea of the spiritual gift of being able to direct and guide people. So if you have someone in your church who is really able to encourage and direct and guide people, Paul is saying, pay him for that. Now, see, if it only had to do with preaching, we would understand that. You know, a guy needs some time away from the field, away from his occupation to put a decent message together. But that isn't just what Paul is saying here. He's saying, if you have someone who really has good leadership ability can really direct people well and help them get the job done, do whatever, sorts people out, whatever. This is a very personal gift. Allow them to be employed to do it. So what you're, you see here, actually, is where we would be getting the idea, this is the only place in the Bible where you get the idea of a paid, full-time worker in a church. Or, as we would call them, pastors. Pastors. Now, we still had the idea of pastor from chapter 4 in uh, Ephesians, where it says God gave apostles and prophets, evangelists, pastor-teachers, for the work of the ministry to equip. Now, you realize that even when you're talking about those guys there, they've got a job to do. I mean, this is sort of like a full-time thing. This is sort of what Paul was. He was employed full-time in his work of church planting and setting churches up. But it was the idea that they do a specific thing for the church. They help the church get organized. They help the church get matured. They fit people into ministries. That's that kind of leadership thing again that Paul is talking about here. And I think at this juncture, what he's talking about is finding people who can do that. In chapter 3, you've got who's qualified to be an elder. The elder list in chapter 3 is very intentional for where this church is. The list for elders there is they at least have to have these qualities. But there are many more qualities. I mean, that's why it's great to have other letters, right? They need to be mature men. It doesn't mention maturity. You say, well, it is. Yeah, but when you get to Philippians chapter 3 and Paul says... I have given everything for Christ that I may be found in him with his righteousness. And he goes through this whole list, which is like super. And he says, look, those of us who are mature be thus minded. Well, I would think that Paul is saying you need to be an example. Leaders in the church need to be an example. We need people who are going to be this mature. And it's not fair for us to say, I don't want to be mature. You got to be mature. Paul is saying... Under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, this is how you should be thinking. This is how what you should be striving for. So that would also, I think, go on to elders, too. So there are all sorts of things throughout the New Testament that we could definitely say, maybe they're not in the list in, in Timothy, but they would still be very important to have there. One of these things that Paul is bringing out right now is leader. Now, I'm going to head into another rabbit trail. Specifically for us, at the beginning of the 1800s, particularly in England, this is basically the, uh, the planting ground for movements like the Plymouth Brethren and others, there was an extreme kind of hierarchy in the church. It was so extreme in England that if you didn't follow that hierarchy, you could actually be put in prison. You were not allowed as a layperson to do certain things. The the high church uh, model that carried over from the Catholic Church carried right into the Church of England. I mean, William Tyndale was not put to death by the Catholic Church. He was put to death by his own people for translating the Bible from Latin into English. There was this... Uh, very extreme thing going on. And so what Ironside says in his history of the brethren, that when these men, and here are some of their names, I had to write them down because I never remember, Edward Cronin, Cronin, uh, Edward Wilson, H. Hutchinson, William Stokes, J. Parnell, uh, J.G. Bellett, John Nelson Darby. Uh, When these men were, especially the the first one, uh, Cronin, What they were looking for was something that was not so strict. And this is what Ironside says, they were finding it everywhere. Before the the word Plymouth Brethren even came up, people were naturally breaking off. You know why? It's because they had the Word of God. And once you get the Word of God, you start getting God's heart, and you start understanding, we don't have to meet like that. We don't have to live under that kind of rigidity and that kind of lack of freedom. We can actually follow God the way we want. We can meet in barns if we want. We can meet in homes if we want. We can participate. We don't have to be clergy or anything like that. Now, the reason I'm bringing that up is simply this, is that was very extreme. And so you can understand then, not only on the part of the brethren in their formation, but in so many other groups, finding more open ways to worship. And so when this Edward Cronin goes to, Ireland, and he's finding all sorts of people who want to start meeting in different ways from all sorts of high church denominations. Hmm. Now, the reason I bring that up simply is this that is not the atmosphere today. Now, you may still find some holdouts for high church, but our situation nowadays, almost all denominations, have plurality of elders that's it's just standard i have never been in a church in my life as an adult that didn't have a plurality of elders every church that i've been a pastor at had a plurality of elders the pastor obviously i'm coming from my background was simply an elder among elders with a gift of leading and teaching that's all i was i never considered myself any higher and believe me and this is the thing you don't understand they didn't understand me as being any higher than they were either. There is a kind of rebellion against authority out there that you cannot imagine. Basically, anybody with a Bible in their hand feels the right to walk up to you and say, Who do you think you are? Not anybody special. Well, you know, why isn't my idea as good as your idea? That happens in so many churches, you would not believe it. Pastors have an average, I I was surprised to hear that it's still this, an average turnover rate of four years. Youth pastors have an average turnover rate of 18 months. Just, you think there's authoritarianism out there? Yeah, from the people, but not from the pastors. And see, here's the deal. Any good pastor who's worth assault. salt, Strzok doesn't say that necessarily in his book, but his organization does, is that the reason that other churches work is because they become teams. It's just like that. I mean, I can't imagine that Rick is an authoritarian dictator in his church. If he's a wise pastor, he builds a team, he's a team member along with it. I always liked the, the illustration of soccer as being a great idea of what a pastor is in a church. Because when you go to a small town, the coach is actually a player coach. You don't have that many people, right? So he's on the field with his guys and, and they, they're setting direction. He's listening to them. He sees what people can do and where they can make their plays and, and who's good at you know uh, kicking it across the field and who's got a great eye. And so you develop your team like that. And in all good churches... That's the case. What's so interesting to me in studying men like Moody or C.I. Schofield or um, Lewisbury Chafer, now you realize what they did was they took the best of the brethren. Because the best of the brethren has always been in their way that they exposit the scripture, the way they open a prophecy, the way they speak about the second coming of Jesus Christ. It's, that, it's what Lewisbury Chafer called taking a half-closed book and opening it up fully. And when they did that, when guys like Moody, Moody could not, even, do, even doing evangelism, could not not speak of the second coming of Christ. It just opened his heart. And look at what C.I. Schofield did with his study Bible, dispensationalism. And Lewisbury-Chafer, you have an entire institution that is well-led teaching young men and women, a dispensational approach to theology. It's amazing what they did. None of those men worshipped as the brethren worshipped. In fact, Moody, it became problematic because he liked the brethren so well that the brethren were dividing so quickly. The biggest thing about the brethren became, at one point, kicking themselves out of their own fellowships. That guy I mentioned there, Edwin Cronin, He eventually wound up being kicked out of the brethren by the brethren because he did communion at another church. They became a denomination unto themselves. At the end of Darby's life, I forget who the name was, but he's saying, oh God, please don't let them kick so-and-so out. And they did. And that's why the way we meet... I mean, it's a blessing in some respects, but maybe not in others. But the strength of the brethren was in something else, the exposition of the scriptures always. And Moody could not live his life without having Macintosh's Notes on the Pentateuch with him and things like that. Now, the reason I mention that is simply this. What you see here in this passage is the okay to have a pastor, to have a leader. And there are still Brethren Assemblies, and this has really hurt the Brethren Assemblies, who don't believe that you can have a full-time worker. That you shouldn't, because if you do, he's going to exalt himself. And it makes, that's like, it doesn't have to be. That doesn't have to be. It isn't everywhere else. Dallas Seminary, for the most part, at their beginning, they were putting out pastors. None of those pastors, or very few of them, went into Brethren Assemblies. They couldn't. They had to find other places if they were going to lead as God had gifted them to lead. And there's a sense where even nowadays, there are certain, I think, assemblies that hurt themselves with having this this sense of we're better than everybody else and we don't believe in pastors. and, And I've heard that said within the last five years. We don't believe in pastors. I think we're fighting against God if we do that. I think if we take the biblical approach... And we see what Paul is saying here. Now, the other part of this is also tricky. Because when the laity cannot be involved, then what you say is, well, if they're the only ones that can be involved, we don't believe in that. We believe in the priesthood of believers. We believe in inequality. And we do. It's written right into the text. But do we believe in leaders? Do we believe in leadership? Now, see, if Paul was here... Maybe even we would get in his face because you realize that Paul, we we think Paul is amazing. We think Paul is bulletproof. You realize in 2 Corinthians, all he does is fight for his life. Nobody respected. In Corinth, they got to the place where they didn't respect Paul. You read the Apostle John in 3 John, and there's so-and-so there that didn't even accept John. Who does he think he is? Again, that sense of Equality in everything can be taken as a sense of we're not going to follow leadership, which is also bad. If you read all of the Bible, what you see is God raising up key leaders. Moses was an important man. Not because Moses was an important man or he made himself important. God made him important. David was an important man. There's leaders all the way along the line. When you get to Caleb and Joshua, these are leaders. They're, they're two of twelve that believed in the power of God and what God was doing. And they got to the place of, the people said, we're going to stone them, and the cloud came, boom, and separated them. We have a resistance to following leaders. And I think we need to get over that, because what Paul is saying here, and what you see among all Christianity, where the word of God is going out, and people are coming to Christ, people are following leadership. And it's just that we we need to get on board with God. We don't need to get on board with a, a seminary or a line of teaching or anything. We need to get on board with God. God creates leaders. And in that context then, if we want to get out of the woods, we need to follow. I mean, why would you bring someone in as a leader and not follow them? I mean, why would you look for a guide and not follow them? Why would you go to a doctor and not take his advice? Why would you do any of that? But in the church, we have this idea of equality, and it just becomes a mess sometimes. If God gives us leaders, we need to follow them. I was sitting with Bill, and I, <laughs> I was talking about this, and... Um, he starts laughing, I, I said, oh, you're laughing because I'm imitating uh, Cullen. And uh, Cullen Tuttle. And he said, no, you're imitating Micah. That's where Cullen got it from. That, that three repeat that he did during the VBS, I don't know, I don't know Micah. You know, all I know is Cullen. And he started laughing. The point is that I think what God is saying here to Timothy is if you find people who can lead, single them out, and, and let them do it full time. And if you find people who can lead and teach, all the more. Because this will always be giving churches direction and guidance. In this case, the problem was, with the leadership vacuum, they were getting bad advice. That's why Paul goes on to say, oh, so I wanted to give you an example. It is a joy to follow good leadership. And I found this out at Sandy Creek Bible Camp. So the guy who was leading music, uh, Stephen, is the um, uh, brother-in-law of Scout. And he's up there. And I told Stephen, I said, look, the overtone of everything I'm going to say on Daniel is this. God loves us incredibly. Okay, so any song you have with love, put in there. And so wouldn't you know it, somebody suggested a song that he had never played before. Everlasting Love. Now, I'm going to have the elders come up here and stand in front of you. Uh, Is anybody here who can play Everlasting? No, I wouldn't do that. Stephen didn't know any of the hand motions. He didn't even realize there were hand motions to the song. I don't know what cave he grew up in. But anyway, what they said was, do any of you kids know the song and can lead us in the hand motions? And four people got up. And so Stephen did a great job playing the song. Here's what was interesting. Four people got up, and two of them, while the song was, was being played, they just went. <laughs> they were just so happy to be up in front of everybody. And it's like, I couldn't follow that. I mean, every now and then they would do this, you know, but they, and look, they're looking to the other two over here and going, you know. And it, that was not leadership. You know, So what they did the next day was they said, okay, only those two over there. Now the other two, a girl and a guy, the guy especially was phenomenal. He was so good. He was so natural. He was so relaxed. He was so happy. In fact, when he went that way, he would do this. And when he went that way, he would do this. It was cool. It was like you had joy in following his example. And I think that's what God wants in churches too. I think that he raises up leaders. And you know, was it a problem for Barnabas? Was it ever a problem for Barnabas? When he realized that people were really listening to Paul and that larger crowds were gathering when they listened to Paul, was it hard for Barnabas to step back? No, that's why we love Barnabas. Because he was that kind of guy. And I'll bet he had joy in seeing what the Holy Spirit was doing through Paul. He just had to be willing to step back. So I think God wants us to have leaders in the church. I don't think there's anything wrong in a biblical sense with having the designation pastor. If he understands he's an elder among elders and he's a humble servant of God, You know the liability of working in the church is this. You do it every day. You do it every day. You even do it on your day off. But can you imagine now for the last umpteen years, John and I, this is all we've been doing. I mean, you guys get to go to work. But this is our work. But we're here. And what it does is it occupies your heart and mind over and over. And you read things in books and you get a sense for things and direction and possibilities and... If you go to a doctor, you want to go to a good doctor, right? You don't want to go to the guy who got a D in class and still became a doctor and has read no books. You want to go to somebody who is just immersed in it, right? And the thing is, what happens to you when you work in church like that is you become immersed in it. Sometimes you get a good idea or two. Paul goes on here, counseling Timothy, and he says, Do not admit a charge against an elder. Verse 19 except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Now, imagine, we haven't met these all of them yet, but in chapter 1, we met a group of would-be leaders who are standing up, and they're teaching about the law. And Paul, Paul says to Timothy, they don't even know what they're talking about. Why would they be teaching about the law? Well, first of all, every place Paul went, there were always people behind him, nipping at his heels and saying, well, did Paul tell you you need to be circumcised? So there were... Pharisaical Christians, who were always trying to get Judaism in there, but more importantly, with the fires in Rome burning, it wasn't against the law to believe in Judaism. Nero was persecuting Christians. So, if you could do a little bit of razzle-dazzle and make yourself as a Christian look like a Jew, wouldn't that be money in the bank? I mean, you could avoid some persecution. That would be a great idea. Ergo, the book of Hebrews. And you've got those guys in chapter 1. The guys in chapter 3, you know, many are going to fall away from listening to the pretensions of liars and the doctrines of demons who forbid marriage and enjoying abstinence from foods. Boy, that's sounding like Judaism again getting people to go back into line. when we get into chapter 6, the funny thing is you have these guys who discovered a way to make godliness a means of gain. We can get paid for snookering people when they see us as their leaders. So when Paul is saying this about never accept a charge against an elder except on the charge of two or three witnesses, I could very well imagine that or this one witness, is somebody who wants to position themselves. Well, you don't want Joe. You know, I've heard people talk about Joe. I've heard people talk about Joe. I don't think Joe should do it. Why? Because they want you to choose them. You don't believe that happens in churches? You should sit in a group of pastors and listen to the way they get shot up and down. That is not an easy task to lead a a church. So I think that's part of it. The other thing is just very natural. Never receive an accusation against an elder except for two or three witnesses. Now, in our day and age, if this ever happens, you need to go to John because he's more studied than this than I am. I mean, because lawsuits against churches and what you can and cannot do, you know how you should investigate this in a group of elders, and what kind of accusation can come in and put the guy on ice immediately. All those things. Because, unfortunately, this does happen in a bad sense to pastors. I mean, they're they're innocent, but an accusation comes in of such a caliber that if you turn a blind eye to it, You might be liable to something else. I mean, this is a a bad world that we live in in that sense. However, how many of you can think of ministries where they did not listen, even with two or three witnesses? So it's just a murky world out there. A lot of ministries have gone down. A lot of ministries should have had elders who immediately, when they heard about certain things, investigated deeply and they were willing You know, because you've got a key man. It's like David. I mean, David is probably the best example of all of this. You don't think other people knew what David had done? He sends some servants out to get Bathsheba. You don't think that was talked about in the palace? He needed somebody to come to him among the minions and say, you're out of bounds. You cannot do what you're doing. But nobody would do it. And we've got to do it. Because leaders have a very important place in the church. So Paul goes on and tells Timothy. I can tell Timothy he's starting to look over toward the bottle right now, if you know what I mean. But in other words, he's probably starting to get more nervous as he sees Paul saying this. Except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. As for those elders where it's been proven that they have sinned now it doesn't say that they've sinned again this is why it takes a group of wise people to get together it's saying those who persist in sin and there is no word persist in your bible it's the the tense or the mood of the participle there they keep on sinning and in that case you've got to move in and he says do it publicly i was in a church once for A couple of days. Anyway, a situation was brought to me. I go to the elders and I say, did you guys know about this? And they go, yeah, we knew. (laughs) They're just waiting for me to come in, I guess. And uh, we had to put a, a man under discipline and in such a way that we did it publicly. And you know what? It turned out good. He repented and kept his marriage together. The whole thing worked out. But if you're not a unified body and you try something like that, It will be ulcer upon ulcer. And I think Timothy is starting to feel that now. And then he says in verse 21, In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudice and doing nothing from partiality. In order to have the strength to do this, especially if you're in a small church and you need people, And so here's a group to choose from. And, you you know, it's just like you want people. You almost wish them to be holy. You wish them to read their Bibles. You wish them to be mature. And you realize as much as we need these people, we can't afford to put them into leadership. I can kind of try to guide them a little bit, but I cannot give them that position. And so what Paul tells Timothy is a very wise thing, and this maybe goes back to the beginning of this message. Are we able to stand in the presence of God? I think that as mature believers in Jesus Christ, we need to be able to get ourselves alone with him and actually come into his presence. I know that sounds a little eerie, but I think you can do it. I really do. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the holy angels. Now I, that, that could be a sermon right there because that's so reflected in Revelation, the holy angels and that. But the point being is that you need that kind of stability and focus in your life if you're going to make decisions like that. You cannot do it. The first word is prejudice. Prejudice means you're basically against something. You don't like the way they look. You don't like the way they eat. You don't like this. You don't like that. And so, therefore, it puts you in favor of the other guy. That's wrong. Whereas the other word, partiality, is you're inclined to this person. You like them. I mean, this is a buddy. You know, and that woman there, I mean, you know, is you're already inclined to them. And because of that, you're willing to overlook things. And Paul says, you cannot do that. It just doesn't work in the church. So Timothy is giving an ulcer upon his ulcer. At this point, and so we go on and he says, Here's the application. Do not be hasty in laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. How much sin is allowed? I mean, we all sin, right? But when you know there's sin, how much sin should you overlook? I always like using that the thing of making Kool-Aid. Everybody knows. How many people here have actually made Kool-Aid in their life? Right, uh, just about everybody, nor- normal people. Anyway, it's two quarts of water. Is it four cups of sugar still? I think it's it's a lot of sugar, a lot of sugar in there. And then, important Kool-Aid. Well, here's the deal. What happens if you're off like about two or three ounces of water? I mean, it says four ounces, or, or uh, no, it's four ounces, two cups of sugar. Four ounces you need. Okay, so what do you do? What do you do to get that extra that extra water? You know what? You could just scoop it out of the toilet, right? Nobody'd be looking. Nobody knows, just us. Except if I know I'm not going to drink it. How much is too much? Or how little is too little? The natural tendency is to try to put people in positions too quickly. And Paul is just warning Timothy off. Take your time. And then he tells them what more than one minister in the gospel has unfortunately learned is that you cannot control your mind. You cannot control your anxiety. It's hard to control your nervousness. And you know, as much as you think it's mind over matter, it's not. Wouldn't it be cool if it was? But, you know, we still need doctors. We still need people to help us. Uh, John will never run out of work in terms of psychology and that. You know, I would like to be able to say, oh, give them the Bible and tell them to obey and all their problems will be over. Well, it doesn't quite work that way. And the thing is for Timothy, when Paul gets to this part here where he says in verse 23, no longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. I just believe with all my heart, Timothy could not... Get the fighting and the opposition and the pressure out of his mind. Keeping him up awake at night, not being able to sleep. And of course, this is messing with his stomach. And Paul just says, he doesn't say get drunk. He just says use a little wine. Find a way to relax. And maybe you can find a way to relax boating or... Playing video games, Timothy didn't have that. Or messing around on his iPhone, I don't think Timothy did that either. The point is, what Paul, I think, is telling, and I'm just saying this from about 40 years of experience, I think Paul is just telling Timothy, you need to relax. And this is maybe the way you need to do it. I I think it makes sense. And then finally, at the end, it says, verse 24, the sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. What is he saying? You know what I think he's saying? Is no matter how hard you try, you're not going to bat a thousand on this. Somebody is going to slip through the grid. You may put the best filter on them possible, but there's going to be things you don't know about them. And I think what he's telling Timothy again, is another way of just calming down. You're not going to be perfect. Jesus is the perfect preacher on the planet. Did everybody listen to Jesus? No. And Jesus said, if they didn't do it to me, they're not going to do it to you either. The thing is, Judas did not slip in there. It says Jesus knew from day one that Judas was going to be a catastrophe. But the thing is, we're not God. The best praying that we do, the best trying that we do, we're still going to, Maybe not make mistakes, but we're not going to see it. And that's what Paul is telling Timothy here. Don't take it to heart if you don't flag people, but you've got to do your best. So also, good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. You know, the thing is, on leadership, a group of men or whatever kind of leadership you have, there's always that thing of, well, people are looking at you, you can't make mistakes. The thing is, you can do the best job you can, and you're probably still going to make mistakes. Or things are going to slip through that you don't know about. At the end of the day, this is the church of God. And it is his church, and we can call upon him and cry out and fast and plead. And I think that is, in those senses, some of the best things we can do. But at the end of the day, we may not see everything there is to see. And that's where you need to be able to come back to that beginning thing being able to center yourself in the Lord and realize that he does not take his love away from us at all. I can imagine Stephen, the deacon. What a hot, sweaty, bloody mess he must have been, preaching to the Sanhedrin. And, you know, you can always... Second-guess yourself when you're, you're speaking, and some people could look at what he said and say, well, no wonder they killed you. Look at the long sermon you preached. You know, that'll get you in the grave. Or you dug your grave with your own mouth, because look what Stephen says right at the end. I mean, you don't win friends that way, but the Holy Spirit was upon him, and he said what God wanted him to say. But here's the thing, as he was dying, it wasn't Jesus saying, you messed it up, buddy. It not only says that Jesus greeted him, but Jesus stood up from his Father's throne to welcome him. And so at the end of the day, I just hope this is a solace to everybody's heart. We give everything we have for him. We cry out, we pray, we beg. He asks us to do that. But no matter how it turns out, when we meet him, he'll be standing at his throne in welcoming us to him. And that's the thing. That ought to strengthen all of our hearts and should have strengthened Timothy's too. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. You have entrusted so much to us and it just seems that you made a bad decision. I mean, why in the world would you do this? I know that we have the Holy Spirit and I know that we have your word and it's still just so hard. It's hard to know everything. It's hard to make the right decisions. It's hard in the face of uh, rebellion or conflict to think clearly sometimes. And you know all that. Our Lord, our Savior knows all that. And yet your love for us is so deep. Jesus is looking for the day when he will welcome everyone of us into his presence. And that's when the party on Mount Zion will begin. And we will thank you for that. And we will rejoice in that lavish feast that it talks about in Isaiah 25. And there will be joy everlasting. And that ought to be our motivation. There's nothing that we can do to blacken ourselves in your sight because your blood is not only all-sufficient, but it is overwhelming. And has cleansed us forever from all sin. So I pray that you would give us courage in our hearts to go forward and follow you, knowing that it's the best we can do and that you love us ever, with an everlasting love. In your name we pray, amen.